Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So it's the 20th anniversary of Radiohead's breakthrough album, OK Computer, arguably the last masterpiece of the alt-rock era. And to celebrate that anniversary, the whole band talked to Rolling Stone's Andy Green for a recent cover story and an online oral history. He also talked to Nigel Godrich and Alanis Morissette and Michael Stipe and other people both involved directly and peripherally with OK Computer. And we have Andy Green here to talk today about OK Computer and the making of it. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing good. How are you, Brian? So what do you think was the first genesis of OK Computer? Didn't he write an OK Computer track during the making of the band's Tom York? Uh, yeah. When I spoke with Nigel, he said that he remembers Tom just going through a tiny notebook and penning the lyrics to Subterranean Homesick Alien. It was sort of the Ben's era stuff when they first met Nigel, who was the engineer on that album, and started to work with him as a producer that they started thinking about the possibilities of their third record. And they also, as you chronicle in your story, got the title from uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and they were apparently listening to the original BBC radio broadcast of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a line, okay, computer. Yeah, I want full manual control now. It's a key moment in the book where our heroes are about to be blown up by these missiles, and they sort of take the power back from the computer, and they run the ship on their own, and they save themselves. And we know that Tom York kind of scribbled that down in a notebook while they were listening to it on, on the tour bus. Mm -hmm. And then even, you know, Paranoid Android, of course, comes from Hitchhiker's Guide. Right. It's weird, though, because Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is very, very silly. It's very funny. Yeah. And people have this image of Radiohead as very grim. And I think it, it, it maybe helps inform and enlarge people's picture of what this album is about. Yeah, I th I think they're seen as grim because of creep and you know like fake plastic trees and how serious all their videos were at the time and everything. But <laughs> and I, the expressions on their faces all the time. Yeah, like that they look pained. You know, they were part of sort of the grunge boom in some weird backwards way at the time, which was all very serious. But in talking to the guys for days upon days. They're mostly pretty funny. It's sort of like my experience with Pearl Jam in 2006. The band that you knew during like their tortured young days just aren't the same people that you encounter years later once they're grown up and everything's cool. Right. For the it, most part. It, yeah, it's like so many bands are frozen in amber at the peak of their popularity or their critical whatever, but they keep growing and changing and, and they aren't 25 forever. My favorite quote possibly of, of many great quotes that you got was uh, Tom York admitting something about this album. The whole album is really fucking geeky, he says. I was kind of a geek when I was a kid, unashamedly so. Um, because of course it is. It's just, I think, an important thing to, to admit. Right, because it's often seen as like, as like the coolest record of the 1990s, but it's super cool guys. But, but Tom was right. It's a really geeky record. <laughs> I know that in, in one version, at first, you really wanted to start the story with a particular anecdote um, about them visiting Palo Alto. Right. So what happened there in that visit? They were at the end of the leg of the Benz tour. They'd been on tour for three or four straight years, and they were, were in Palo Alto. They were playing a tiny club on this double bill that night with David Gray. And they got a tour of the Apple factory. And it was a time when Apple was really starting to finally evolve and sort of shape the future in a huge way. But they were just so bored by it. Probably wasn't the factory, right? It was probably... Well, yeah, it was the factory. Right. I mean the factory. I mean their headquarters. Right. The, the factories are in China, but right. yeah. the actual headquarters in Palo Alto, where they've been for decades now. And he wrote a song about it that was eventually called Palo Alto, where it was just a cynical look at the city of the future where it's hard to concentrate. But the original title of that song, Palo Alto, was, of course... 
okay computer yeah i also always found that fascinating and it seems like some sort of key to the album but then well, when you run it by them right yeah it, it seemed to be key because my idea of the album as i went into it was it was this pre-millennial rant against technology and the dangers of it and how dehumanizing it all is but they pushed back it against that so hard so i just kept asking tom about that visit to apple and the importance of it and he just kept saying like yeah we walked around i remember the building was like made out of glass and that was it i mean he didn't have much to even say about it but again you know artists don't get to dictate how we hear the album and i think what happened is they wrote an album about their sort of tour malaise and of course it contradicts the cliche which is basic it's usually about the second album but the first album is, you know, obviously they have their whole life to write and compose it. And then the second album usually is the one that's just about what happened to them on tour the last year. Right. And it, that usually means a really bad album. And in this case, they were probably the greatest uh, tour malaise album of all time. And Tom York is a really sensitive person. He's a sensitive introvert forced into this situation of kind of having to electioneer, as he said, like shake hands with all these people and to be crammed in a bus with his bandmates for months on end. And he began to sort of lose his mind, really, right? Yeah, he started to crack. There was a moment I was talking to Ed where it really was just crystallized in my brain when he said between 92 and the summer of 98, we had one month off. January 96, besides that, we were on tour the whole time. And so the the dislocation that Tom York was feeling, this sense of that he was everywhere and nowhere, that he was being sort of deluged with information from his travels, ended, that's what he was writing about, essentially. But when we hear it now, yeah. we hear it as actually a, a chronicle of our current condition as everyone keeps writing. It really does feel prescient. It, it, yeah, yeah, in a very big way. And he was observing the world through a tour bus window or a hotel room window. He was like an outsider almost, sort of studying the country as he was going by. So Subterranean Homesegalian, which was sort of like the uh, extraterrestrial version of Deacon Blues, this guy, instead of dreaming of escaping the city and being a jazz musician, he he dreams of like literally being kidnapped by aliens Mm -hmm. and he's wishing for it. Let's hear that song and and get a sense of what the origins of this album might have been because that was one of the first ones that they had. They had a lot of sort of musical role models for this album. One of the most incongruous is the Johnny Cash Live in Prison album. They had trouble articulating that one, right? Yeah, they brought that up multiple times. As the Tom and Nigel, and I would push them on it, I would be like, how were you inspired by Johnny Cash at San Quentin? And they finally said, well, it's how loud the vocals were, that Tom was really impressed by how, how the Johnny Cash vocals were very present and very loud in the mix when they made exit music and a few other songs. They tried to sort of emulate that sound. The other one that actually seemed to play a, a really big part of it was uh, Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, uh, a tour bus favorite, as you wrote. And I love the Johnny Greenwood quote about that. In some ways, we were really conceited, and we would listen to a record like Bitches Brew and be so heavily influenced that we wanted to do it. It didn't bother us that none of us had or played or even wanted to have any trumpet. And yet we had the kind of arrogance to go, yeah, we can kind of go for that. And the thing is, I n- actually know what they mean, because it doesn't ever exactly sound like Bitches Brew, but that sort of feeling of being a little off, a little musical unease that's conveyed that Bitches Brew can convey in some moments that I think OK Computer shares. And maybe we can hear a Spanish key from Bitches Brew and, and see if the, we can hear any commonality there. Mm-hmm. 
a distant spiritual cousin, perhaps. Uh, so you got a chance to spend a bunch of time with the band. You got with them on tour so yeah. between their Coachella dates? Yeah, the yeah. Between two weekends at Coachella, they were booked at the at the Berkeley Greek Theater for two nights. And I was backstage for a long time at both shows. And then I flew back about a week later to interview Tom. And you talked to Tom in, in like an Italian restaurant, right? Yes, it was his favorite Italian restaurant in like Los Feliz, California. But he was in like, from the beginning, a pretty good mood, right? And the thing that I think we almost wanted, he did, which is have the ability to look back on the Tom of that era and on the band of that era with a real sort of amused distance and, and be able to talk about it pretty loosely. Yeah, which was pretty amazing because he does very few interviews. And he's never really done the back in the day kind of interview. You know, they're a band that's that's always looked forward. This is their first like kind of retrospective thing that they've ever done. This new box set. So he was sort of prepared to talk. He'd been going through all of his old notebooks, and he was surprisingly funny. He was warm. He was fun to talk to. And uh, I asked one question that got such a long, wonderful response. I just said, can you tell me what the Tom York of right now, about what he would say to the Tom York of back then? And the answer, of course, started with lighten the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Which is exactly sort of what you want him to say. Mm -hmm. In general, you had a chance to talk to the whole band about going back to the, even their earliest days. And one of the things that struck me as you talked to them was they had this weird configuration where they're all kind of like a different colleges and stuff different universities yeah well they formed back in 1985 <laughs> which is sort of crazy uh, and they were teenagers but they didn't put any music out for about seven years yeah so they had seven whole years which is a lifetime of most bands that's like how long that like the clash lasted from beginning to the very end to just rehearse and find their sound and they were very bad at that at the beginning but they slowly just really just found a unique synthesis of sounds from all of their influences the thing that was interesting is they were the opposite of like a bar band type band who were just playing tons of covers and learning to please an audience and literally the exact opposite they played on their own to each other for each other recording constantly for years without playing a gig essentially and that, yeah. and I think that says a lot about the kind of band they became and it helped shape the kind of band they became which is they were playing for themselves and creating their own world they weren't covering you know Long Tall Sally <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. for, a, for, a, for a bar audience you know yeah, yeah. And what's funny is that at the very beginning that Johnny Greenwood was just the bass player's kid brother uh, that they didn't know very well that was just, just kind of hanging around the group and he wouldn't leave and, and he eventually <laughs> became just this huge part of their sound and the band but he was two years younger which is two big years if you're 15. How did creep affect the band? It's a big thing but I think in the end you could say it's negative but I think in the end it was a positive because they have this huge hit from their first album. They're not the kind of band you would expect to have a huge hit with their first single and it meant that they were not unlike every other band. They were not in debt to the record label. They had freedom from the beginning. Yeah it's a huge thing because there's so many years they would slag off Creed. I mean, Creep, excuse me. I'm thinking of, they loved yeah, Creed, though. Yeah. They were huge Creed fans. Yeah. They loved all that stuff. Yeah, Creep, obviously. Uh, but I was asking about it, and, and like all five of them, yeah, and even Tom said that, that it was a very good thing for them, because you're right, because they weren't in debt, because they were able to come to America and play decent-sized shows and sort of build a following. 
which so many of their peers, you know, there were huge groups at that time period that were in England. There was the Stone Roses, there's Happy Mondays, but they didn't have a creep. They had no radio hit. And then the other big difference between them and those bands is those bands, and this is a famous thing about English bands going back to the 70s at least, is many, many English bands don't have the patience to spend those months you were talking about, months on end, touring America, breaking America. Right, and with Radiohead, they knew off the bat that that, that was important. So they came to the States and they just hit every single town. they go to El Paso, Texas. They would go everywhere, year after year. And that was crucial, because they, A, they became a fantastic live band, and B, they grew an audience in a very organic fashion. The reason that you talk to Alanis Morissette for this story isn't just because of your obsessive Alanis Morissette fandom, but because she was a big fan of The Benz, their second album. That was actually a difficult recording process for that album. They were trying to figure out their whole thing. Well, yeah, they had so many ideas that they had such a, a big vision for, but they had a very limited time period and they had to work in a usual studio and they just, so to them, it's just very compromised. But Alanis loved the Benz and she invited them not only to open for them on her you know this wasn't any tour this was her jagged little pill tour yeah. this is Alanis's moment as an absolute pop superstar and she invites this basically at this point sort of one hit wonder British band and tells them that th- this is a key point tells them they can play anything they want and what they wanted to play was the still in formation okay computer music um, so these dark doomy epics playing in front of uh, you know Alanis disputes, by the way, the contention from the band that these were an audience full of of, of 13-year-old girls. But that's how they remember it. Yeah, yeah. That was a funny point because the band, they had all of these funny memories of these super young girls all freaked out. And I mentioned that in a very nice way to Alanis, and she did not like that at all. Well, Uh, she's defending her fans. Those are her fans. Of course, which I totally get. But they had just started work on the album. And sort of, they used her stage as a very bizarre, just kind of just, just like testing ground for these new songs. So it's the first time they played Car Police. It's the first time they played Paranoid Android, which had this long outro on the organ. And it's funny, it's just a couple years before bands had to worry about sort of Napster and being bootlegged. People forget that as soon as Napster came out, that was the moment when a band could play a song live and then fans would record it and put it online like immediately. Right. So this was summer 96 where to hear this stuff, you'd have to either go to the concert or have like a a, a tape of it or something that somebody sent you. But basically here they were debuting like what would become like some of the most like beloved songs by a huge band in front of like indifferent audiences who couldn't care less and they didn't, they didn't have to worry at all about this getting out and no one, because no one cared. Right. Yeah. They knew Creep and that was it. And besides that, they were mostly pretty bored. My main memory of that tour, Johnny Greenwood said, is playing interminable Hammond organ solos to an audience full of quietly despairing teenage <laughs> girls. Yes. And and York said, we, we were well adept at playing to people that didn't give a rat's ass about us. Right. I used to quite enjoy it. People are sitting down to their chicken dinners. We were trying to get them to choke on their bones. Who's uh, having... It's one thing to, at a concert to get a chicken sandwich, which can happen i've had that but bones means it's like a whole chicken meal they serve there with like actual bones in the chicken what kind of concert venues are serve, serving like a chicken dinner with the, the bones still in it if you if you watch like the you know the first music video for for okay computer like yeah. i think that's sort of how tom york sees the world like the grotesque cartoons sometimes yeah and i'm sure he saw like some 
to his mind like some grotesque American eating a giant chicken sandwich right. one time and it's stuck in his mind forever. I guarantee you. That's I'm sure you're from. right. And by that point, they opened up for a lot of bands for, for REM and for all these groups. So they were very used to that kind of environment. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We're talking about the making of OK Computer as it hits its 20th anniversary. And we'll be right back with a lot more. So we're kind of getting up to the actual recording of OK Computer, and they decided to do it in a pretty elaborate setting, and and I'll read what Tom York had to say about it. Uh, By the time we got to the end of the Benz tour, we felt like, okay, we've done that now. Then the record company kind of shut up and went, all right, it's fair enough, do what you want, and whatever you do next, we'll totally back you. If you think about it, if you're a movie director in the studio like J.J. Abrams, Paramount comes around and says, whatever you want, mate, you got it. We were like, okay, we want all our own gear, we want our own studio, and we want to work with Nigel. And they went, okay. And this is an artifact of a different era. I mean, this is an era when, not to mention it's a band, a band that was popular, that's an artifact, and then a band that's making so much money for the record label that the label's like, here, go rent this crazy house. So what kind of house did they get? They got a manor house in Bath, England that was basically the size of a castle. Yeah. It's called St. Catherine's Court because houses there, they'll have names. Right. And it was owned by the actress Jane Seymour. Who you who you spoke to for the story. Yes. And she was delightful. And she explained to me that she could only be in the UK for just 90 days out of the year because of tax reasons. And she was filming Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman at the time, which was in Los Angeles. So she had this huge castle that was just sitting there. So it would be leased out to bands. And The Cure, the previous year, they recorded their album there. By the way, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's actually a character who spends a year dead for tax reasons. Oh. So this is, this all, it, <laughs> okay. all, it all comes together. I guess that's a very English thing. Yeah. So the other salient point about this house, if you believe the band, who are all educated and sensible individuals, yeah. they were convinced that it was haunted. Yeah, which surprised me because all five of them, they seem to really believe in ghosts, which even Jane Seymour said, you know, that she heard the stories, but she thought that it was ridiculous that I was haunted. They didn't just believe in it. No. They, they actually experienced it, or so they say. They heard them chattering in their ears at night. They felt the whole house was just haunted, and then poor Johnny was forced to sleep in a old nursery that had, that had old broken dolls and stuff all over it. It's like a movie or something. Tom said, the ghost would talk to me while I was asleep. You couldn't discern the conversations because there was more than one at the same time. I got really spooked while recording the vocals for exit music. It felt like someone was standing next to me. So that's pretty weird. So it was it, it was creating this, this insular environment, but they also had a lot of the luxury of a lot of time to just sort of eat, sleep, and make music. Yeah, for six weeks in two, three-week chunks, they lived there. They barely left. It was just eat, sleep, and record music for days and days and days on end. And they had no firm deadline, really. It was the first time they had that sort of freedom to just create art and not have all the pressure of money and time just bearing down on them. So Nigel Godrich is pretty key in all this, and he was, on the Benz, he was the engineer. Yeah. And on this record, he was on board as producer and sort of all but name. He didn't actually get that title, but he was the producer. Yes. And he had been looking for a band like this. They were the band of my dreams, he told you. There were no constraints. This was not Neanderthal rock and roll. It was very high-level thinking, conceptual, moving forwards in terms of sonics, and beautiful songs. It was a perfect thing. So they had for the first time someone who shared their sense of ambition and wanted to do something sort of crazy great. Yeah, it was a young producer that was their same age, basically, that really saw 
the potential of this group in a very big way. And he, he shared their ambition. Now, by sort of definition, just in the abstract, something like OK Computer is progressive rock. It, it, it pushes the boundaries of rock. There's long songs. There's very complicated chord structures. There's, it just is. However, that sort of progressive rock is a thing as opposed to prog rock, which is a more specific thing that they all hated. <laughs> yeah, though they didn't know much about it. They grew up in sort of the, in the aftermath of the punk revolution where prog was like a swear word. So they knew they hated Prague, but they didn't really know a lot about it. So sort of without realizing it, they sort of rebuilt it from the ground up on a few of these songs. Right. And Paranoid Android is kind of the, um, it's, it's kind of the, the key moments. It's six and a half minutes long. York is repeatedly described as a cross between Bohemian Rhapsody and Happiness is a Warm Gun. And Bohemian Rhapsody also was a huge thing for Tom. Yeah. He said that as a child, it was the first moment that he really loved music and, and saw the potential of a song in a big way like that. But yeah, they had like a allergy to Prague per se. The, the problem with Prague stuff, Johnny Greenwood told you, is it sounds like it has been really thought about and it's exhausting as a result. All those records were very pastoral and they're preaching about unicorns and dinosaurs. Let's hear Paranoid Android. I mean, it's the dictionary definition of a prog song. It's long, it's 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 in multi-segments, there are time signature changes. There's even a Mellotron on it. But again, they reinvented from scratch. They were doing something like prog rock that wasn't prog rock. Yeah. And it sort of lacks the same sort of pretension that some see in 70s prog. It was the progressive rock that could have been from 90s alt rock. And, you know, one example is is sort of what R.E.M. started doing. They were obviously very influenced by the complexity of what, what Radiohead was doing. And, of course, they worked with Nigel Codrick. Yeah, I, I think the album Up, though, Specifically, I yeah. did mention that to Michael, and, and he firmly rejected that whole idea <laughs> strongly. Uh, but I think it's still true. And the context here is key that they really wanted to, to progress and to move rock forward because Britpop, which in 96, when they made the record, was the dominant thing in all of England, was very different than what they were doing. And Tom, particularly, he despised Britpop. He saw it as com- completely backward-looking. Yeah. The feeling was mutual, of course. Oasis hated Radiohead. It was not a, there, yeah, it was not it was, a friendly relations between was, those things. It was sort of this quiet war because there's so much tension between Blur an oasis but it was radiohead against all of them but it's sort of like radiohead just had contempt for it they just weren't interested in it they already had that feeling circa 96 97 that bands were passe electronica was brewing hip-hop was so great they already had this sense that in order to sort of justify being a rock band you had to a little bit transcend being a rock band yeah i think johnny and tom especially i think johnny felt a bit ridiculous still playing guitar in a rock band you know, he said that if someone's grandfather is old enough to be in a punk band, then like, what am I doing? You know, he says that music, it should be something that is just sheer noise to your parents. And they started doing things that would hint at the next direction, which, of course, was Kid A and, and a much less overtly rock thing. There was a moment that I think you rightly make a big deal of in the story because it, it really kind of showed where it was going. And, and there were some dangers embedded in it, which is... Um, York and Nigel Godrich were drinking one night when Tom said he didn't like the second half of Karma Police. 
and then they went off without any other members of the band and like created a new second half to the song and right. it's like sort of that's the kind of thing where i'm sure you didn't really get into it but i'm sure when they're like hey guys check it out we like just we don't need any of you we just <laughs> went and did this i'm sure it's like uh oh like there's a little bit of warning there and of course they, they did go off and and make time even time york soul records together so right yeah it was a foreshadowing of a lot of very difficult stuff and a big moment for tom when he realized that he can be in a rock band but that that doesn't mean it's a sound of five guys that are playing live together in a room what's your airbag The thing is, there there were a bunch of uh, outtakes on the on the new deluxe box set that kind of give you a sense that this could have been a much more commercial album. And it's funny, like during the bands, the the label would like actually visit Radiohead in the studio, and you can only imagine how much <laughs> that appalled them, you know? Right. And so they they jettisoned these songs, you know, and there were a few that end up like sort of sounding like Coldplay would sound and stuff like that. Right. There was Lift, there was Man of War, and Phil told me that when the label heard the sessions off of OK Computer and they heard those two songs, they were delighted because they heard singles, they heard pop music, and they imagined that they had a big hit on their hand. Then they see the track listing and they weren't there. It's because they had a very specific idea of what they were doing. Right. And Lyft in particular, there's a live version you can watch. And it's like Lyft sounds more like Coldplay than any sort of released Radiohead song. It's very right. interesting. You almost wonder whether Chris Martin actually heard it back in the day. Yeah. It could have easily. They, they did played play it live. It live. They, they first played it live on those Atlantis Morris set shows. And they had memories of the fans dancing to it. So a brand new song they never heard that still managed to, like, to uh, connect. Um, well, let's hear Lift and get a sense of sort of alternate reality Radiohead. Yeah, I mean, that could have been their first single, but instead they didn't release it, and the first single was Paranoid Android. Yes, again, six and a half minutes, faintly terrifying. <laughs> yes. I mean... Lift is, I think, really interesting. What that song does is it distills that one side of Radiohead, this sort of uplifting, stadium-friendly side. And that's, of course, Coldplay in some ways, among other things, did that. And listen, that that is a way that bands can influence other bands. You can take one aspect of a band that the band leaves aside and build a build something on that, and and add a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, the other the other funny thing is that people say electioneering from this album. I've seen that people, young people, they must be young. They say it sounds too much like Muse. Have you ever yeah. heard? That? Yeah. I think it's clear that Muse got inspired by Radiohead. And what's funny is that's the one song on the album that the band hates. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think some fans don't like it either. But it, again, it's like you can take one song from a band. I'm not saying necessarily that this is what Muse did and, and build a whole career on it, essentially. Right. And then I think Travis, they took Street Spirit. And exactly. All right. Well, let's, let's hear electioneering. Do 
know what though? It actually sounds like Welfare Mothers by Neil Young and Crazy Horse. And they love them. Exactly. They love Neil Young. If I had to bet anything, the real inspiration for that song is Crazy Horse. But it's funny that that somehow translated through Radio Filter somehow gets you to Muse, who sound nothing like Neil Young. Yeah. (laughs) It's super bizarre, but But you're right. The person who was perhaps most aware to a fault of Radiohead's influence on other bands was Tom York. It really bothered him yeah i said to him at the end of our interview i'm like in the aftermath of the album all these bands started to come on the airwaves i was very careful to not name names and he was like oh yes and they're still there aren't they and he was pissed what i thought was really funny was tom would get mad at nigel because nigel i guess worked on like a travis album yeah that was the man who which is a huge record right so Tom would actually get kind of, maybe not mad, but annoyed with Nigel because he felt that these bands were actively ripping them off. And and Nigel told you that he would like kind of call me be like, you know, like (laughs) you don't own the copyright on a falsetto and an acoustic guitar. You don't own the copyright on like guitar and drums. Like, like just relax. Although again, Nigel is incentivized to downplay because he wouldn't want to be on an album that was deliberately imitating Radiohead. Right. I imagine the man who, that Travis record, which was humongous in the UK, that much really pissed off Tom, and then Coldplay hit. They put out Yellow in 2000. And I think the combination of those two things played no small role in them wanting to just totally abandon that sound. Well, it's not, you know, in hip-hop right now, you have, like, Designer comes out with a song that sounds just like Future, and it's a bigger hit than anything Future has out at that moment. Or when Panic at the Disco was bigger than Fall Out Boy or Stone yeah. Temple Pilots were bigger than Pearl Jam. It can be very maddening to the to the person being imitated. Or when Creed was bigger than Pearl Jam. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> it, you, you could play the Pearl Jam game for a while. But yeah. Tom, again, being a sensitive person who takes things intensely, like really didn't like this. But as Nigel said, the good thing about it was it then led him to the next thing. Yeah, which was Kid A. And as Nigel said to him in a really funny way, he's like, look, if they were copying you, you were copying somebody else. You know? Right, right. I thought it was interesting what Tom said to you about Kid A, which is he said something was a mistake. It's not clear what he was. I think it's the process he was saying it was a mistake. Right. I think that he was so focused on building these songs with him and Nigel and Johnny that to Phil and Colin and Ed, it's like, what the hell do we do? <laughs> Right. The the others didn't know what to contribute, he told you. Uh, yeah. When you're working with a synthesizer, it's like there's no connection. You're not in a room with other people. I made everyone's life almost impossible, which is another thing that makes you realize, like, wow, Tom has done some thinking, and he's come, like, a long way from maybe even a few years ago. And he even told you that, that he's ready to get in a room and sort of jam with the other guys and record that way. Yeah, which is shocking, because Colin told me, who's the bass player, that his dream is to finally just get back in a room with the five of them and write songs again. I think if I think for so long, it's just been Tom just creating these songs and them doing the things in it that they can, which is which is, which is a ton. But So part of the irony is OK Computer, as we've said, was formed out of the alienation and isolation and sort of losing it of Tom York on tour and then he they promptly went back on tour and lived out the themes it got worse right yeah it was worse in a lot of ways because they were exhausted out of the previous five years of touring and they were forced to now confront just so much press so much acclaim just so much focus on them that Tom started to really crack and it was filmed by a filmmaker for this great documentary Grant Gee for uh, Meeting People Was Easy, which 
helped sort of form an image of Radiohead that they probably feel is a little inaccurate or one-dimensional, which is they did seem especially miserable during the filming of that movie, of course. Yeah, and the group told me that Grant just happened to show up at the worst times when they were the most homesick and most miserable and that they had fun on that tour. But then Grant told me that he didn't see them laugh even once, that it was just deadly serious the whole time. Right, it was... Again, they were subjecting themselves to things that were not really congruent with their personalities. They they decided they were going to sell the hell out of this record. They delivered an album to take a step back that, again, they didn't have the songs that the record label were hoping were on it. And the label was actually disappointed with what they delivered. They didn't think it was super commercial. They supposedly cut the order pre-order in half for the yeah, album. Yeah, and stateside especially, that the album, for all the acclaim, peaked at number 23 or something in the States. I mean, it was not a humongous hit over here. But knowing that the, what they had delivered was a little hard to digest, Tom York said, let's really fucking go for it. Let the machine do what it needs to do, and we'll try to give it as much as we can. And what that meant was just selling and selling and selling. And these guys were not meant to be salespeople. And they were just kind of like, they got really numbed by the process, by the by the interviews and by the tour. Yeah, Tom told me that he was doing about five interviews a day, which doesn't seem like that much. But, but he said the pain of just talking about himself was killing them. And then the same set just every night on stage. And then traveling to Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, it would just sort of got to be a bit much. And his throat was bothering him. It was just very difficult. And they also were sort of, at that point, despite like the label's initial reaction, they were actually being treated sort of like gods, like saviors of rock and roll. The album was getting tremendous right. critical praise, and, and that was freaking them out. Right. It was especially true in the UK, it has that, that at the time especially, had this real culture of these weekly music magazines that would just go nuts over something. And the key context here, it's the same summer that Be Here Now by Oasis came out, which was supposed to be like the biggest album ever. You know, there was so much buildup to it and it was just a coked out fiasco. And so here comes this young band who were already like marked for greatness by the British press. It was a little different than America. Like the band right. was considered a masterpiece. They were primed for this. It was sort of like... It really is almost like Sgt. Pepper in the sense that a band goes away to make something great and then they actually come up back with something great and the press just like showers right. acclaim upon them. And, and the timing was so good in that besides them, that the rock scene was pretty dead at the time. It was live. It was Matchbox 20. It was Bush. I mean, there wasn't much that was happening at the time. So Well, again, it could have like sort of augured a new era for 90s alt rock instead it was like literally at the very tail end of it it was the masterpiece that right after that you know you did Spice Girls and Hanson and MTV shifted over to pop and it was kind of all over yeah it was in the very week it came out the top song in America it was Hanson's Humbop which asserted which was the beginning of the whole teen pop thing so, right. So, it, instead, it really was a bookend, you know? Right. And by the time that they went away and everything, that's when Napster hit. That said, the tour was so stressful, Tom started to kind of go to Michael Stipe for what? He saw Stipe as like his godfather of sorts. You know, he, it was his hero that had become his good friend. And Stipe was able to just coach him through this, you know, because with R.E.M., they had a very gradual rise for years and years and years. So he was able to sort of understand, like, the rock star game. Tom was so new to it and happened so quickly that Stipe was able to just tell him, just close your eyes, breathe, this will end, <laughs> you know. This is something that you and I talked about. I mean, 
it's hard not to think of the fact that just a couple years earlier, you know, Michael Stipe had been very close with Kurt Cobain and had tried to coach him through everything and, and, you know, it hadn't worked out very well for Kurt. And this was on my mind and, you know, we talked about it and you asked Michael Stipe, he really didn't like that question. Yeah, I tried very gently to say to Michael Stipe, I'm like just four years earlier, another sensitive young songwriter that revered you took his own life. Was that at all in your mind? And he did not, you know, for reasons I can understand, he did not like that question one bit and refused to really comment on it. Right. He said, it's just not an easy thing to have that level of adulation thrown at you or deal with people wanting you to be everything at once for them personally, for their community or for their generation, for their country, for the philosophy or ideology. I mean, it's ridiculous. What's really ridiculous, you start to believe the things that you hear and that includes the critiques. I do remember telling Tom simple things like don't forget to breathe. He also like would kind of trick him into going out to dinner with like all of you too, stuff like that. Like try to just like get him used to being what he was which yeah. is a famous rock star right and i think stipe he's one of the few people on a planet that understands the downsides of intense fame and intense adulation because to most people what was happening to tom was the dream it's funny because tom's sort of problems continue to after the tour you, you have a story in your role history about so michael stipe was mixing up rm's up with with nigel in new york and tom was invited out to see them and he just didn't show up Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he was he was on the edge and they were like really freaked out it's like your friend's supposed to meet you he just doesn't show up and I, he may have like gone to the airport and just gone home and he said that was Tom said that was a real low point for him so he kind of got it back together he said when the tour ended I got a house in Cornwell which I always wanted to do and tried to get a life that involved spending a lot of time walking the moors and walking along cliffs and drawing and trying to find some space for myself and waiting for the monologue to stop in my head Friends forced me into situations like going to the local pub and sitting and talking to normal people. And what they said to you was the band was told by their management that they couldn't stop until they'd built up enough of sort of a reputation that, quote, like the world wouldn't forget about them. And they finally hit that point, like circa 98, and... Tom said, it's obvious that our manager pushed us too far. And at the end, he said to me, you've earned the right to disappear. And that's when they sort of got their heads together to a certain extent. To a certain extent, extent, but then they got into much more difficult territory because they started work on Kid A way too soon. They told me that that was a mistake. Then the fight started. So that began a whole new difficult chapter. But that was all behind the scenes, at least. I guess it's unclear whether Tom was sort of doing better as far as his own feelings, but then just it's possible he was doing better and then immediately start fighting with the band because that's some, sometimes that's what happens when you get your shit yeah. together then you start fighting with the people around you because you feel a new sense of but confidence you know what happened then but for kid a they did a they did like four concerts basically that they stopped pushing tom which was key right they were trying to find a way to not repeat themselves and to not get stuck in rock cliches and i think it can be difficult because it can take years between albums it can be frustrating yeah. when they change sounds in ways some fans don't like but it's also why they're still around yeah. and what's nuts is that Kid A premiered at number one that despite everything it was an enormous hit because I think what happened is the legend of OK Computer grew in, the, in their absence between late 98 through through 2000 it became this college thing right I think that's sort of the true sort of happy ending to the OK Computer story is actually the next album which is for the time even less accessible although now I think it probably seems more accessible it's confusing (laughs) but but that that album debuted at number one that was the triumph well Andy thanks for being here of course this has been Rolling Stone Music Now so we'll be back next week on volume Sirius 106 at 1pm 
next Friday. And in the meantime, download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe and also leave us some reviews on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.